Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast. I'm your podcast host, Peter Ahmad, recording from Cape Town, South Africa, since June 2019. The Talking Transformation podcast provides an open and accessible platform for built environment professionals and interest groups to share their reflections and aspirations relating to the transformation of places and spaces in South Africa. It's intended to be a celebration of the individuals and community groups who are supporting formal and informal processes that are addressing the challenges of South Africa's history and shaping the future of our neighbourhoods and cities. I had the chance to visit Ireland for the first time earlier this month in July 2022. The countryside was as beautiful as I'd imagined in the cities, the towns and the hamlets, full of history and aesthetic beauty. It really is a magical island with a rich and troubled history, warm people and of course the home of you too. Rich talent and treasures truly do abound. The visit provided a chance to catch up and reflect with one of my closest colleagues and earliest friends in planning, Nicholas Lowe. Nicholas and I worked together in the newly formed Gauteng Department of Development Planning and Local Government under the maverick leadership of a very young MEC, Chitrelo Chitreka, between 1996 and 2000. I learned so much from Nicholas, himself a planner, cutting his teeth, but with a couple of years on me in terms of experience. He was undoubtedly one of the biggest influences on my career. At the time, however, it was just a pleasure to work with him and others. He took the time to help me with projects and language difficulties to understand the complexities of a bureaucracy such as a provincial government department. It was an interesting period to say the least. It came at a time still adapting to the 1994 transition, a transition that saw multiple chief directors within the department duplicating roles, representing the old guard and new, and officials who on the one hand wanted to contribute and others who were looking to move on quickly and cut ties from the new government. I entered this space as a planner with extremely limited experience and no practical understanding of the challenges I would face. Nicholas was a big part of helping me grow and adapt in a period of Land Development Objectives or LDOs, a forerunner to the IEP and SDFs, the Masakani social political campaign that sought to promote civic responsibility, encourage communities to pay for services, all within the spirit of Ubuntu. It was also set against the backdrop of the RDP or Reconstruction and development program that was the most important policy document of the time. It's an extraordinary period for South Africa, for South Africans, under the leadership of President Nelson Mandela. It was a time when Bafana Bafana won the CAF Cup, qualified for France in 1998 for the World Cup. It was a period in the aftermath of Springboks World Cup win in 1995, and a cricket team under the leadership of Hansi Cronier was starting to suggest that many more World Cups would follow. The local music scene was alive with the sound of the Springbok Nude Girls, the usual, Vonneboom, Henry VIII and a host of young pretenders. I certainly can't remember a more exciting period of my young life. For a young and naive planner from the UK, it was the opportunity to kick on and define a new life and career here in South Africa. Without the support and encouragement of Nicholas and others, that simply would not have been possible. Nicholas would leave South Africa in 2002 this is the first opportunity I've had really to discuss with him his work and personal transformation in Ireland. His journey is a testimonial to his efforts and commitment to the profession and the communities that he serves. In the podcast, he touches on the challenges of balancing common issues such as increasing population growth and responding to the aftermath of COVID and more delicate and parochial issues, supporting maintaining medieval buildings and heritage sites 
within the Nabans for progress and growth in the small towns and cities around Ireland. The podcast was a highlight amongst many exciting events in July and I hope you'll enjoy Nicholas's reflections and the approaches that he describes. Apologies in advance for some of the audio quality of the recordings. In testing out a new microphone setup, the quality is not up to the usual Talking Transformation podcast spec, but normal business will resume in due course. Enjoy the episode. So it's just gone 5.30 on a glorious afternoon in Carlo, a town 45 minutes to an hour outside of Dublin, capital of Ireland. And welcome and thanks to my guest and host whilst we're here in Ireland, Mr. Nicholas Lowe. Nicholas, how are you keeping? Good to see you. Good to see you too, Peter, and great to have you here. Look forward to an interesting interview. It's been great to finally see you here, your new home, home of 20 years now, Nick, since you've left South Africa and you've been working here in Ireland. First things first, congratulations on 20 years serving the people and the communities here in Ireland. Tell us a bit about that period prior to Ireland where you were working, having graduated at Victoria University and then working within the provincial department where you and I met. Tell us a bit about that time and what you were working with. I started my career in 94 in planning. So firstly started in Mpumalanga, Department of Housing and Local Government. I was responsible, I suppose, for the northern part of Mpumalanga at the time. I did a few interesting projects there. I was involved in the Durankop land restitution case. Then obviously did your normal land use responsibilities, applications, less formal township establishment applications, etc. After that, moved over to Gauteng, where obviously we worked together. I was responsible for the eastern part of Gauteng, the former Eastern Gauteng Services Council area, later Ikiruleni. We did the land development objectives, the IDPs, did some training for local authorities on those. Um, I was involved in a very interesting land development project, uh, which was the Reedfontein uh, with about 200 hectares of, of state land, which we tried to develop. The landowner was the Department of Health, so they had the primary responsibility. We acted as an agent for health to assist them to do, a, to do up a master plan. Richfontein Hospital was an infectious disease hospital. I suppose at the beginning of the previous century, there was an outbreak of a smallpox. People were treated there for all kinds of infectious diseases. So unfortunately, with the outbreak of smallpox, they had to take emergency measures, as I understand, and people were buried in mass graves, and those weren't properly demarcated. There was also a danger of anthrax being on the land. So those were all issues at the time that were very difficult to overcome. And I'm not sure if the technology has moved on, and maybe those can be overcome at present, but we found it very difficult. The one thing I remember very well is you taking quite a, a lead on spatial analysis and using a tool, GIS, to, to try and understand opportunities, constraints of land. It was called eLand at the time. Tell us a bit about what that how important that was in shaping things around GIS and its use in planning in South Africa. You remember that in the late 90s, there was a huge drive to identify land suitable for housing construction within the boundaries of the urban edge. We didn't have sufficient information available to identify all of that land. And there was no real link in terms of GIS to update systems in real time. So we approached the CSIR to help us to develop a computer package that could sit on top of the GIS that could enable the GIS to give us these answers. That was the ELAND system that was developed at the time. We did that to great success. We identified most of the suitable land 
that were not subject to subsidence due to dolomite that was in close proximity to transport corridors that could be serviced. There was a, a whole multi-criteria analysis tool that sat on top of the GIS, and we hope that in time that would be able to link to local authority GIS systems so the system could always be up to date. And uh, from there on, came to Ireland, early 2000s. At first, it was a two-year contract just for a bit of adventure, but found that I fit right in and then took it from there, moved around a little bit in Ireland until I arrived at my current employer, which is Kilkenny County Council. Kilkenny is one of the counties of Ireland. Kilkenny City might be well known. It's a, it's a medieval city. It has about 30,000 population at the moment. The county is about 100,000 population. And there I am currently responsible for all functions of planning, including enforcement, forward planning, development management. So I find that very interesting. I can imagine Ireland in those early 2000s, very different to where we are now in 2022. Tell us a bit about what you arrived into and how that changed over those two decades. Yes. Well, when I came to Ireland, didn't know what to expect, to be honest, from a planning perspective. I arrived into a country that was actually, it was booming. It was called the Celtic Tiger at the time, started in the mid nineties. We were actually recruited from South Africa at the time because there just weren't enough planners in Ireland to deal with all the applications and to make the plans. Infrastructure wise, I found that the roads infrastructure, for instance, were not up to scratch, was not up to standard what I was used to in South Africa. Since then, there's been a transformation. There's roads, motorways going in all directions, uh, radiating out from Dublin at the moment. A lot of that with the assistance of the European Union. Ireland is only a small country. It has, only has a population of 5 million people. And now with the latest census that has been confirmed as to exceed 5 million for the first time since the, the 1850s. Everybody would be familiar with the Irish famine and people having to move out of the country, moving to America and other countries like Australia, the potato blight, etc. There was a lot of people left at the time and the population is only now recovering. During the, the noughties, there was an absolute economic explosion, which culminated in an economic collapse again, together with the whole world around 2008. But prior to that, there was an enormous amount of construction going on. The planning applications coming through the local authorities were just enormous. We had to deal with thousands of applications, worked late nights just to process them, to meet the statutory deadlines. It was a tremendous learning school. I had to acquaint myself with the planning laws at the time coming in here, not knowing the Planning Act, which is being updated as we speak on an annual basis, trying to account for changes in planning, in thinking, national policy, European policy, European directives, etc. So there's a lot to learn. But the Irish Planning Institute, for instance, at the time was very helpful. There's, there's conferences every year. There's the Trinity Law School in Dublin has various programs they give to planners to update them on all kinds of legislation, environmental legislation, planning legislation, uh, related legislation. Years ago, planning was something that the man in the street could understand, but it has become very uh, controversial and everybody has an opinion these days and, and planners have to be up to date on the legislation, especially European directives. You don't, for instance, want to end up in the European court about, over an environmental issue that you overlooked in a planning application. That's a very dangerous area to go. 
planners have to be very careful that they know all aspects of planning. Very important. When you say a dangerous place to go in terms of reputational risk, in terms yes. of invest, investor confidence, those type of things, right? Yes. Anybody can take a case to the European court, for instance, on environmental grounds without any cost. And that is, I suppose, something that has raised its head in recent years when people aren't satisfied necessarily with a planning application, planning decision or a, an appeals decision that they take a case to the European court. It does not reflect well on planners. It does not reflect well on the government. So everybody wants to try and avoid that. We believe that there's a lot of capacity building going on. And we believe that those issues are all well addressed in current planning applications. We need to make sure cross the T's, dot the I's, very important in planning here. I've no doubt won't be the first time we talk about the European Union and what it what its value is in terms of what it brings to, to Ireland, the economy and investment in the towns and the cities. But if we take that sort of that period, you've, you've talked about the transition, you've talked about a huge upturn, this idea of very much a developed economy, one that has developed in a very quick way, transformation that we talk about, spatial transformation, economic transformation, almost within a generation. There are, I'm sure though, when you've gone back to South Africa, certain parallels that still remain in terms of South Africa's changing dynamics from 1994. Any thoughts and observations about some of the those key challenges, those big ticket items, if you like, which remain between both South Africa and Ireland? The big ticket issues for, for us is always climate change that affects everybody, providing adequate housing to everybody. You know, the old saying, filing to prepare is preparing to file, that, that applies everywhere. We are trying to anticipate what the growth projections are for the next 20 years. So we're working 20 years ahead. Those are the challenges that are universal. Trying to anticipate how many people you need to plan for, where those people need to go, the kind of infrastructure you need to provide at the same time, trying to coordinate that. The, the infrastructure you talk about, Nick, I mean, yesterday we were seeing quite a rural part of the country. You were showing and explaining to us how the government's drive is to put internet, basically broadband, into every home, irrespective of whether it's urban or rural setting. Talk about how roads have improved over that period immeasurably. But now this idea of the IT infrastructure, which is important. That's obviously something that's very important to Ireland, the people of Ireland, and the ability to communicate. Well, Ireland is a very open economy. It's very progressive. It's very much dependent on foreign direct investment. So people having access to the international community is very important and via the internet that's achieved. It is a priority for the government to give everybody at least 30 megabytes of internet access. So we have a national broadband plan rolling out towards all rural areas to make sure that everybody running a local business in a rural area has access. Even farmers that needs to be in touch with the people they supply to. The market, the financiers, etc. Etc. Yeah, everybody down the line. That's of immeasurable assistance to them. This population growth that you've talked about, I mean, that's a challenge that is being faced by many global cities. That demographic shift, the evidence base that drives that, and some of these global events, Nick, how are they shaping the, that evidence base that I think when we first started talking about how you go about your business here, how important that is and how some of these things that you could not have foreseen really drive amendments to the thinking and approach to yeah. housing, for example, to infrastructure. The national planning framework was adopted in 2018, in which the national government prediction was that the population of the country would rise by 1.1 million by 2040. Half of that population 
was then allocated to the urban areas, the five big cities being Dublin, Galway, Limerick, Cork and Waterford. The rest of that population, which is about 600,000, would then go to the rural areas, the smaller towns. The second level of plans is the regional spatial economic strategy for each area. So there was a population allocation for those, and we tried to anticipate what the population growth would be over this period of time. But what we did not expect is that the economy would bounce back so well over the last five or six years, to the extent now that I think the economic growth at the moment is in excess of 6%, which brings its own pressures. There's a lot of people coming into the country to work from all over Europe. As I said, due to foreign direct investment, there's a lot of multinationals here, all the big internet companies, etc. they all bring people in. So that has created a lot of pressure on housing. So housing is probably one of our biggest crises at the moment, to try and prov provide adequate housing up to standard for all these people. Unfortunately, here we cannot just throw up rooms. We have to build everything to environmental standards, and that costs an awful lot of money. There's a bit of a land shortage at the moment. We're trying to curve urban sprawl. All of that in the mix, into the mix makes it very hard to meet the housing targets every year. So that has over time culminated in a severe shortage of housing, which is one of the major political issues at the moment. Then on top of that, the Ukrainian crisis. Ireland has an open door policy towards Ukrainians at the moment. We're trying to convert all kinds of buildings into facilities and accommodation or you displaced Ukrainian people. That's adding additional pressures on top of what we expected in the NPF, National Planning Framework. We have various strategies being implemented, fast-tracking big housing applications so that they're not held up by the planning process. There's legislation being considered at the moment to try and prevent people from taking judicial reviews on large applications for housing. That together with decarbonization of the economony for instance, are, are, the, are the main drivers. How has the city gone about sort of setting targets and thinking in a strategic way about energy targets, climate change more generally? What is it that you've done to develop a framework around that? Nationally, there's a requirement now that 80% of electricity generated or used and generated should be from sustainable resources, which means renewable energy. So Kilkenny has taken the bold step to state that we hope that we can get 100% of our electricity by 2030 to be from renewable resources. That in itself is a challenge because that will mean that we have a, a large dependence on wind, solar and bioenergy. And we have a wind energy strategy in our development plan, which identifies areas that are suitable for wind energy generation. But as per all big developments, these are very controversial. There have been controversy around the size of these projects as required, the applications that were received. Those are the hurdles that we have to deal with at the moment in terms of renewable energy. We also have a decarbonization zone within the city and the long-term objectives of that is still being considered. But we hope to have an area where we can have district heating, for instance, and we can have transport being all sustainable, uh, walking, cycling, rather than using cars. So we'll have to review and revisit some of our development standards in terms of that particular area as first and foremost. And depending on how that turns out, we can roll that out towards the rest of the city as well to include bigger areas 
and retrofit, for instance, the existing uh, infrastructure. You talk about the requirements around green buildings, even the residential, the houses that are going up, costs associated with, with that. It's interesting, taking, again, taking a walk this afternoon, we were looking at the new houses that are being built today, having the electric charging for cars. What does a typical house look like now in terms of the minimum requirements and how that has, again, changed over this last few years? The houses now have to be very low carbon, which means you have to have good insulation. You have to have maybe a heat pump, solar panels, etc., to bring it up to a, a B1 rating, at least in terms of energy efficiency. One of the outcomes identified in the national planning framework is a transition to a low carbon economy. Now, in terms of planning, that means all aspects of society needs to decarbonize. It's not just about housing. It's more about transport, we believe. The focus is on walking and cycling. So we're building the cycle lanes, we're separating the cyclists, the pedestrians, all the time trying to discourage people from using the private car. Are you seeing evidence of a change in, in the modes towards people starting to take their bicycle between their work whole place of home and, and work? Or is that something that you think that now you've provided that infrastructure, we have bigger take-up? I think we have a long way to go to be able to say that we have provided the infrastructure. There's a lot of funding coming down from national government and from the European Union at the moment to facilitate active travel. In terms of seeing a change or a modal shift, we have not achieved that yet. Now, Ireland doesn't have the best climate, so that might have something to do with it. But when you look at places like Denmark, which has a very similar climate, you would find that people do use bicycles. So we are optimistic and we believe that over the longer term that this infrastructure will be utilized and that people will actually make that modal shift. We're betting on that at the moment. So from a planning point of view, we're doing a lot of mobility plans and local transport plans, all with the focus on sustainable mobility. We're talking about mobility hubs where people can drive into the town, for instance, park and then take a bus further, a park and ride, park and stride. Those are going to be the focus points in future. All the time trying to retrofit all this infrastructure into what I said was a very historic fabric of medieval city, for instance, in Kilkenny city. So that's a challenge in itself. And then people need to slowly get used over time to not having cars in the city because, for instance, the traders believe that that activity that, that's being created by cars in a city draws people to the city. So if you remove that overnight and have only pedestrians and you have only a few people, for instance, walking around the town, then does, it doesn't give the impression of activity. We have a lot of funding that's coming down the line. First, we need to agree the plans with the communities and the traders in towns. And that's something we're working on at the moment. But what we did see yesterday was some of the new bus stock that you put on the ground there. And obviously, it, it, if I understood, it, it was quite challenging because of the whole COVID. COVID came just at the same time as you were rolling up that out. How is that starting to pick up, Nick? Is that starting to have an impact in terms of people using those buses? And how, is, it, is it free or does it come quite heavily subsidized? What's the, the approach there when it comes to the buses? The bus service in Kilkenny commenced maybe a month before COVID struck. Couldn't have been a worse couldn't, time. Couldn't have been a worse time. And uh, we then found that the buses weren't being utilized at all for, for a while. 
obviously. But we, we see now that there, and I don't have figures on that, there is a, there's a huge uptake in the, in the use in those, in those buses, and we're even planning additional bus routes at the moment. So it is being subsidized at the moment, and it is still in a, I suppose, in a trial period. Once that period is over, they'll make a decision on whether we're going to add routes, etc. From my looking at it, I do see that there's an uptake in people using it. Let's talk about Kilkenny. What a fantastic place to be responsible to plan for that, together with some of the other beautiful hamlets and small towns that we visited. This whole sort of heritage and history underpins them. It's very deep in the DNA of each of those places. How do you go about marrying the history and then this need to, to forge forward, to progress, and deliver on, as you say, the demographic increases, the land uses that will inspire new, new uses and the greater extent? Yes, Ireland has a, has a very long, I suppose, troubled history with occupation, etc., but during that period, there was a, a lot of fantastic buildings, a lot of fantastic infrastructure constructed, which currently is of tremendous value to the country in terms of showing its past, attracting tourism. People are tremendously proud of their heritage. And the first step is to acknowledge that heritage. And that is done through the development plan. We have a record of protected structures, for instance, where these structures have been investigated, their qualities have been recorded, and for that reason they've been put on the record. We also have areas of architectural conservation where it could be a whole streetscape, for instance, that has a protected element or protected aspect that have to be considered in all planning applications. There is a challenge in trying to retrofit modern infrastructure into this old town fabric, for instance. Uh, widening footpaths, providing pedestrian infrastructure, cycling infrastructure, in addition to cars. The impact that has on buildings, trying to put in different paving, more friendly to people with disabilities. Those are all challenges that we face and we, it sometimes requires an engineering approach, sometimes an architectural approach, sometimes a bit of both. So it is a very fine balance that we have to strike. So when we were walking around Kilkenny yesterday, Nick, it was very obvious that there was a lot of people from all over the world there, not just the, the locals going about the business, but tourists. I think there was a whole group of Spanish students that we saw who I think you were saying are, are learning the language, or at least English, here in Ireland. Clearly the whole question of tourism and Ireland as a tourist destination is a very strong sector within the economy. How important is it in terms of its growth, its sustainability, and the revenue streams behind Kilkenny? Tourism for Ireland is an enormous earner. We have a, a tourism body called Falcher Ireland, which means welcome in Irish. Falcher has divided the country into three tourism zones. We're in the ancient east, which is the east of the country. Then you have the hidden heartland, and then you have the wild Atlantic Way, which is on the west coast of Ireland. As part of the ancient East, I suppose we pride ourselves on our med medieval city, on our medieval mile, which runs through the center of the city, which is with its old medieval buildings. We have two cathedrals, for instance, and Kilkenny welcomes approximately 600,000 visitors a year, which is an enormous amount of people in a city of approximately 30,000 people. Sure. 
we have challenges. We need to get people to, to stay longer and enjoy our city more. And I think that the current spend in the city is around 100 million a year in, in euros, which is substantial. If you could think that's in Rand, that's probably 1.7 billion Rand in a small city of 30,000 people. That's enormous. It's of immeasurable value in terms of the econ economy it generates, the job opportunities it creates, the opportunities for, for children to stay in the town that they grew up, that they don't have to move away. We are also looking at facilitating a university there, a campus of one of our local universities, the University, Technical University of the Southeast. We're, we're very fortunate to have this historic infrastructure that we can show to the world. We looked specifically at two projects yesterday. You took us through and walked the Abbey Quarter and the Watergate Hoven Park. Those are two examples of initiatives that you planned and you've implemented. It's going to take a decade or more to complete something like the Abbey Quarter. Perhaps just tell us a bit about those two projects, what they are and how they complement each other, planning processes that you put in place and what you hope you'll achieve with them. Yes, Peter, the, the Abbey Quarter is a, is a very important project for the County Council at the moment. It is a piece of land of approximately eight hectares in extent in the middle of Kilkenny City. The area in which the Abbey Quarter is located was traditionally settled by Franciscan monks who actually built an abbey there in the middle of the city. It was an old floodplain, uh, so fortunately not too many buildings were built in that area. However, in the early 1700s, the Smithick family started a brewery on the site, which operated for about 300 years. Many people might be familiar with the Smithick's beer and might be known worldwide, but it, it all comes from Kilkenny. And so we're very proud of it. There's still a, a, a Smithick's visitor center in Kilkenny, even though they don't actively brew on the site anymore. Diageo, which is the parent company of Smithick's, offered the site to Kilkenny County Council around 2012. The council, having the foresight to develop the site, took on the challenge, purchased the land, and we did a master plan for the land, and now we're actively developing it. The first phase was to develop the old brew house, which is a fantastic 1960s industrial architecture building, and we have converted that into office space, and it is being currently occupied by, amongst others, Glanbia, and we hope that the future phases of the project will be as successful. The second phase of the project is just about commencing. It is a second building, and after that we hope to create an urban park, an urban street, and then various residential developments as well, hotels, and uh, so we, we're very excited. We think it will bring a lot of vitality back into that particular area and it will create a lot of job opportunities for the city as well. We talk a lot about catalytic projects, mm. mixed-use precincts. What you showed me yesterday and what we saw was very much the embodiment of that. Mixed, diverse uses, diverse users, a very strong emphasis on the pedestrian, a very strong emphasis on multiple sources of funding, not just the council putting its money in, but I think the European Union were funding parts, particularly around the, the park. Um, are these are these observations accurate? No, the county council doesn't always have the money to embark on huge construction projects. 
So it entered into a partnership with the Irish Strategic Infrastructure Fund. So in combination, we are developing the site. We're also using uh, monies received from the European uh, Union uh, in terms of public realm, etc. And we are counterfunding some of it, some, some of that development ourselves. So yes, your assessment of it being a catalytic project is correct. The length of time that it's taken to get the project to where it's at, I think it's an important one. I think often we, we expect these things to happen in a very rapid period, a year, two years, a political term of office. What we're seeing there, you talked about it being purchased, I think 2012, it's taken a full decade to realize just phase one and phase two may take, phase three may take that next decade. The length of time in these things is an important consideration. Again, is that, a, is that fair? That's correct. I, I suppose we did the first master plan in around 2014. We are only now completing the brew house project in 2022. And we're already finding that we, we probably need to review and revisit the master plan. So we have just embarked on the process of appointing consultants to review that plan for us to see if the assumptions at the time are still valid and whether we should change or amend or improve. Let's talk a bit about that input, that public participation, which is such a foundation of planning, uh, whether it's in South Africa, whether it's here in Ireland. H how did you go about that city and county development planning exercise during lockdown? I think that was a big challenge for all planning authorities across the world when people are not able to meet as a congregation, not able to come together. The use of online seemed to become very much in vogue. Tell us a bit about what the process entailed, how you went about executing that statutory planning process. We need to review our development plan every six years. So we had embarked on the review process uh, when COVID struck. Immediately we knew we were in trouble. So we had to find a way to reach the public who, can, who could not come to public meetings, for instance. We considered all options and we decided to have online forums would actually be the only solution that we could follow. We established a portal which people can look at. It's called consult.kilkenny.ie. It's a forum on which we place all projects that we do at the moment. The development plan process was the first step in this development and, and we found that due to the success of the development plan, we're using this portal for all our projects at the moment. We embarked on that process for the development plan. We advertised uh, in the papers and then online through consult, invited people to register for the meetings, the online meetings. We use a, a website called Eventbrite, which is a portal for registration of events. Then people were sent a link to the meeting and we met people online to great success. We feel that even at this stage uh, where we're able to meet people again, there is some merit in keeping some of these meetings in, in that forum where you, where you can share information, show people on their screen exactly what you mean. Whereas in a, in a big room, in a forum, people mightn't have the immediate access to all the information that you can show on their screen. Um, so we found that very beneficial and, and we completed the plan through that process. And we're very satisfied. And mostly, most importantly, the members are satisfied and the communities are satisfied with the plan that was produced. If people are interested in what we're doing in the Abbey Quarter, they can go to abbeyquarter.ie. 
And if people are interested in looking at the projects and at our public consultation portal, they can look at consult.kilkenny.ie. And all the information is there of projects and how people engage with those projects. Well, Nicholas, thanks so much for your time and consideration this afternoon. Thanks for hosting me whilst we've been here in Ireland. Very, very proud of what you've achieved over this last 20 years. You've done so well. Really, really wish you the very, very best in the years to come and the work that still needs to be done here. It's clear you're going to have your hands full and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing about how things go in the future. All the best to you, you and the family and your team here. Thanks for your time today. Good luck. Thank you, Peter. You're very welcome. We hope you enjoyed this content of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please feel free to give us feedback via our Twitter platform. That's at Talking Transfo and the number one, or alternatively via our email address, talkingtransformation101 at gmail.com. Thanks and recognition also to Tribal Need for allowing us to use their track, Flags, as our introductory and closeout music on this podcast. <laughs>